somebody told me your name is Peppy, or they call you Peppy. That was a nickname that I... Where does that come from? It's uh, one of those stories that people think there's going to be a, a really interesting, amazing, you know, answer to, the, to that question, and it's a, just a boring story. It's a boring answer. I mean, it's quite funny. I, I was uh, 17 years old, uh, left home really, really young to go to Detroit. Uh, got, my dad knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy, got me an audition in a band uh, that was on the road going, uh, an artist that was had a new record out, he was just going on the road. In, uh, and uh, so I, we, you know, passed the audition, went on the road with these guys who were all about 10 years older than me, 10, 12 years older. And uh, uh, one of them was a great big guy. And so I, I was jokingly calling him Pierre the Lumberjack, right? And he thought that was funny because he was just a you know big guy that you would think would be a lumberjack. And so he was looking for a nickname to give me. And this is the funny thing. So I'm in the United States. I'm 17. I'm, I'm illegal. I'm underage. Uh, my parents sneak me across the board. Everything's wrong, right? <laughs> and I'm playing in bars underage and all, kind of, and all those things. And uh, a lot of illegal immigrants in the United States, as you're aware, are of Spanish orient, mm-hmm. right? right? So, uh, Mexicans. And they all call them, it doesn't matter what their names are, they call them Juan or Pepe. And so that I got stuck with you're, you're one of those guys. You're, you know, because I'm I got dark hair and, and I was a little guy and I look like maybe you know could be a Mexican. And so you're, I got called Pepe, and that was the funny thing was I was in the states for three years, playing in bar bands, and in that time I met two Canadian uh, other Canadian musicians who were working in the same kind of the same circuit that I was involved in, and. Uh, met them became friends but never hung out a lot and you know they they drifted on and i i decided to come back home and come back to canada and uh when i did one of the things that i thought was well i got rid of that 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 nickname you know because nobody knows me up here and i was home for four or five months came to toronto and i ran into one of those two musicians and the first thing he said was hi peppy how are you <laughs> and it was like everybody else around him said oh is that his name it was you know i was like uh, you know, it was, I was given this uh, uh, neon sign over my head. You know, once one more time. So I've, I just kind of, at a certain point, said, "Well, th- I guess that's my name. That's what it is." So it kind of stuck. It definitely stuck. Yes, yes. And I've, I still have friends who call me Peppy, and they call me Mike, and they call me Michael. And some of them, it sounds funny if they call me Mike or Michael to me. Like it sounds, I can tell that they're they're trying too hard. <laughs> But because, you know, we're all getting older, some of them, out of, I don't know, some kind of respect or whatever, have started calling me Mike or, or Michael. Uh, but it's not necessary. That's the funny thing. They, they, they feel it's necessary, but I, I'm just happy being their friend. So. <laughs> yeah. so I'm talking to Michael Pepe Francis. Yes, sir. Yes, I guess so. Studio musician and musician in general. Um, was, that, was that a country band that you first joined or...? Yeah, it was uh, because that was my uh, my father's background. Uh, he was a country singer, and uh, so I grew up in that world. My dad had a, a little country band in uh, in Chatham, Ontario, and um, he had a, a local radio show. They were, you know, for the for that little area, they were quite successful in the uh, in the fifties and sixties. And, and he uh, 
he was his band was the opening act for uh, a lot of uh, Nashville artists that came through that area. So Windsor, uh, London, and Sarnia, that kind of triangle. Right. My dad's band when they came to do concerts like uh, Jim Reeves, Ferlin Husky, Farron Young, Brenda Lee, all these kind of people, Patsy Cline, all these kind of people. My dad's band would be the opening act, and so I got dragged to a lot of uh, these events just you know because. I, you know, my dad was involved and he said, you want to come, why don't you come with me? When you're seven years, you know, six, seven, ten years old, you kind of go, sure, okay, whatever. <laughs> and and so the fact that you play guitar, and is that the first instrument? The guitar yeah, is the first yeah, instrument? Yeah, yeah well, that's all there was in our house were guitars, no piano or anything else. So that was uh, what I ended up gravitating to. And But directly through your dad? Yeah, through my dad and, and through his, you know, luckily for me, uh, <laughs> there was, you know, my dad's influence, which was very... Uh, uh, one directional, you know, uh, as, as, as far as music goes. Uh, and, but fortunately for me, there was a, um, a Motown just down the road and I had a little transistor radio so I could, you know, listen to my dad's, uh, music in the house and my, and, and my mother was a, a big fan of, uh, uh Nat King Cole mm-hmm. and Perry Como and singers like that. She loved that kind of music. My dad was very hardcore country. And then there was Motown that I could listen to on a little transistor radio at night. So I got R&B. I got the, you know, like the, great, the great era of R&B from Motown and uh, when I was a little kid. And then you know, my dad's influence and then my mother's influence. So I had all these things rolling around in my head. Was your was your dad a professional musician or was it just a, a hobby? It was always... Uh, uh, part-time thing for him I mean it was you know at, at the time um, there weren't that many opportunities to move forward especially in southern Ontario and have any kind of a big career so there you know he, he never had uh, uh, the opportunities that uh, he probably deserved but uh, you know he, he tr- tried to, to make a go at it a couple times but it, it, it he didn't give himself enough time or, and enough of an opportunity because he had a wife and a child uh, right. you know to take care of and other responsibilities you know but he encouraged you. Well, yeah, it's it's a funny thing. Yeah, there's he encouraged me, but there's there's uh, uh, there's also another side to it. I mean, I'm an only child, and uh, um, so um, I started playing when I was eight or eight nine years old. I think eight or nine. I think eight. And uh, at the time, I wanted to be a singer like my dad. You know, play and play and strum guitar. And then I it evolved, and I ended up falling in love with the guitar itself and uh, um, when I was in grade 11 uh, probably things I shouldn't admit but uh, this is I wouldn't recommend this for for anyone but when I I'm, I'm totally self-taught so when I was in grade 11 um, because my mother and father both worked and I'm an only child they didn't know what I was doing so I just stopped going to school and stayed at home and played guitar all day and uh, they'd come home and say, how was school? It was great. It was fine. You know, fine. Anyway, uh, obviously, grade 11 didn't work out so well. And yeah, uh, um, at the end of the year, my dad said, well, what are you going to do? And by, by this time, I was, I, I'd been playing in my dad's band for a couple of years. Um, I, it had evolved to that point where I was his guitar player. Um, and uh, I said, I don't know. I'm going to play the guitar. He said, well, you know, you're going to... Uh, you better figure out how you're going to make a living. And I said, well, I'm going to play the guitar. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, so 
my dad helped me, as I said a few minutes ago to you when you were asking about the nickname, my dad uh, knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who helped me, who got me an audition with this this uh, guy that had a, a, a single on the radio at the time, was doing fairly well and was looking for a band to go on the road. I got that job, went on the road with him, and, and uh, I thought, geez, my dad's the coolest guy in the world, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Because I, I was 17 years old, you know, and this was my dream. I wanted to go on the road and play and, you know, and play. And I thought, I mean, I, I, I didn't understand uh, that you could go to school and study music because that, you know, the, the, the concept of, of doing that it didn't exist in my household. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, it was, you know, the, the next best thing is, well, you go on the road and you, you work with some guys that are better than you and, and that's how you learn. So, and I wanted to learn. So uh, anyway, I, I'm on the road and I'm playing in bars and a few months goes by, maybe three or four months. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking my dad's the greatest guy in the world. He helped me get a gig on the road and all this stuff. And, and then I woke up one morning in a motel uh, in Minnesota somewhere, you know, at, at eight or nine in the morning, I'm laying there in bed and I'm thinking about the, this experience. And like being on the road is a lonely place to be. You know, especially when you're a teenage kid, mm-hmm. right? And I'm laying there in bed, and I, you know, I was thinking, you know, about my dad helping me get a gig on the road, and, I, and then I realized, no, he didn't help me get a gig on the road. He got rid of me because <laughs> I was driving him nuts. You know, sitting around the house all day playing guitar, and I wasn't, I didn't go out and get a real job. I was teaching guitar, which I didn't really have any any right to be doing, but I was teaching guitar, and I was playing two or three nights a week. But it's you know he expected me to get off my uh, rear end and go get a real job, right? And <laughs> so he kind of pushed you out. So he said, "Yeah, here, let me help you. Let me help you go on the road. That's what you want to do. Let me help you." So uh, you know. And so when when you were learning in grade eleven, staying at home and playing your guitar, what? How did you learn? Was it just were you listening to records? Were you listening to radio? How did? Yeah, both. I mean, I listened to records most of the time. I mean, it's that that all started. The, I got. Um, as I call it, I, I got the disease, right. the, uh, the guitar disease, uh, which is different than wanting to just play it. It's that you can't stop playing it. Uh, when I was 14, uh, 13, turning 14, that's when I, actually 14, when I, when I got that, that hit me. And uh, so by the time I was 17, 16, 17, I was already, like I, I was coming home from high school um, at lunchtime and, and, you know, I was, I was coming home the minute I was done school and playing till I fell asleep at night. My mother was dragging me out of the bedroom to have dinner, you know, uh, physically sometimes. And, and I played till I fell asleep and I, and I woke up with, laying on my back with a guitar on my, on top of me, on my lap. And, uh, uh, you know, got up and went to school grudgingly and came home at lunch and played for as long as I could and then ran back. And so I had, already developed the you know the disease fairly deeply and then when I was 16 in grade 11 I just thought this isn't I don't really care about any of this I mean so I you know I was sitting at home with records um can I ask who you were listening to or who you're trying to imitate or learn from uh at that time it was uh, uh still a combination of things but I would say that you know the biggest influence that before I went on the road and started meeting other other musicians and things like the the biggest influence the big you know guitar influence that i had um 
had discovered my through my dad was uh, Chet Atkins. So it, it was Chet Atkins first, right. and um, uh, then it was you know uh, Leon Rhodes, who was a guitar player that was an icon in Nashville, and then Hank Garland and and uh, other players from Nashville, and then it was uh, you know then it started you know becoming R and B guys you know uh, and blues guys and 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 then rock you know then the, the, the typical uh, list of names that everybody has like Hendrix and Clapton and uh, and Jeff Beck and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, and then you know jazz guys as well like the, the Canadian ones Lenny Bro and, mm-hmm. and Ed Bickert but then uh, all the other people that, that exist Barney Kessel and Joe Pass and all you know just all there's an endless list of amazing guys to uh, you know to draw from right so when you when you told your dad that you wanted to be a musician and then you wound up going on the road, thanks to his help. Did you know what that meant? And and when you were out on the road, did you think, oh, this is what it all means? Like, is that the image that you had? Or well, I, it was. You know, I didn't have a clue. Right, <laughs> but you could play. <laughs> well, I, I could play enough to get a job. Uh, that's that part was there, but I mean, I didn't have a clue about what I was getting into. You know, and as I said, I mean, after a few months, I realized this is really lonely. But uh, the other thing that, the other parts of it that uh, that I, you know, you just can't anticipate until you're in it, until you're in the middle of it and you're doing it, is, uh, um, you know, how do you spend your time during the day? Like, what do you do? So you play from 9 p.m. until 2 a.m., what do you do the rest of it? Right. You know, the other 19 hours, what do you do with that, right? But... I, it was quite funny because I mean I, I did I just didn't know what I was getting into or what the world I just had this fantasy that I was going to meet great musicians and learn from them and they were going to teach me things and you know and and I did have a lot of that I did meet a lot of good players and and a lot of guys uh, you know uh, were kind to me and, and helped me you know got together and jammed with with me in the daytime and stuff but uh, I developed right away I just because I was just out of high school I was you know I was still a teenage kid. Um, I wasn't interested in drinking or partying, so I, you know, I would wake up at seven or eight in the morning. Most of the, it depends on the state, of course, in the, in the United States. But a lot of the states, the bars open at eight in the morning, so I would go down to the bar at eight or nine in the morning, and sit there and play guitar all day, because that's where my guitar and amp were. Right? right. I'd go down there and sit, sit and just play guitar. And if there were songs on the jukebox, I'd play along with them, you know, quietly, not to interfere, but. You know, if there was if it was a radio going, I'd play along with that, or I'd just sit and make up stuff, or try and figure out you know uh, songs that that uh, I sort of knew. I mean that, but so you know, and and the funny thing was the the other guys in the band who were in their late twenties at the time, like I was in my, my late teens or in their eight tw- late twenties, they would come down at two in the afternoon and say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm doing my job, man. I'm playing the guitar." You know, so I would play guitar all day. Uh, like till four or five in the afternoon, go have something to eat, have a nap before the the nine o'clock gig for an hour or two. Get up, have a shower, go to the gig, and go back to my room. Pass out. Those guys go party. I'd pass out and sleep, and then I'd be up at eight o'clock in the morning. I'd go down to the bar again, sit there all day and play. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I was told that you practiced a lot, and even I don't know to this day, but not yeah. too long ago. I was told that you put in at least three hours a day, if not more. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, I still still do. Yeah, yeah. That's just insecurity. Really? <laughs> well, it's 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 a bunch of no, I'm, te- I'm joking about it, but it's half that. I mean, uh, 
um, unfortunately, it sounds, I don't know what it sounds, uh, whether it's trite or whether it's uh, self-absorbed or what, what, what it sounds like or one-dimensional, but uh, it's what I do. It's what I love to do. It's, I'm not interested in anything else. I'm not interested enough to, to devote my, uh, uh, you know, all my focus and my time to anything else. So there's that aspect of, of it. It's, it's something that I've, I'm just in love with playing the guitar. I, I am in love with the thing. And, and then there's so much to discover. You could live to be 5,000 years old and still be just scratching the surface. I wonder, at this point in your life, and you've been playing the guitar for a few years, <laughs> do your approach to practicing, is it any different than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago? Um, not, 40, but. not really. For the, for the past... When my the, the the serious part of say forty two years ago is when the serious part of my professional career started really so the, the the few years before that that I was playing bars were just that was you know being a kid and not knowing any better and and just stumbling around and wondering well what's next I don't know what's next well, well you know like trying to figure it out right. trying to figure out well the, you know what am I gonna do um, that's gonna g- g- gonna get me past just playing in bars uh, but Anyway, that the habits that I've developed, I, I developed for a couple reasons, um, and and really like they're still the same habits. No, number one is is like for today, for example, today before I came here, before I came to Toronto, I, I played scales for three hours with a metronome. Um, that's just a, a warm up exercise, but I I love playing scales. It sounds crazy, but I enjoy doing it. People, some people think it's uh, it's torture or something, you know. Uh, I look at it as as quite is really satisfying and calming. And then I I will I'm curious, so I will inevitably if I hear a, a record with uh, with something on it that interests me, uh, so, you know, some guitar player plays something that I haven't heard or plays it in it in a unique way with uh, has a a unique approach or a different approach, you know, whatever it is, different sound. Um, I, I'm constantly. Th- when I, whenever I hear anything like that, thinking, okay, I you know find out who that is, who the artist, whose record it is, and who's playing guitar on. I want to hear, I want to you know get a copy of that and try, try and figure that out, because I'm just curious. That's so. Those are the two things that I uh, that I go back and forth with a lot. Um, is uh, is playing you know playing scales just the discipline, right? The, the disciplinary things. Then then just trying to learn um, new things, new ideas, finding new things that I want to learn. And then, you know, the, the other reality is, I mean, that's just uh, uh, pop music, basically, because I do a lot of that. And, you know, the thing that I've been involved, got involved with 15, 16 years ago was trying, finally, at, at, at a late, very late stage of the game to figure out what was going on in, with jazz right. in, in, in that world and with the guitar players from that world and, and other musicians from that world. So trying to figure out, you know, because it's a whole other vocabulary and, uh, and the, the, the water's a lot deeper and you have to really, you know, you have to put a lot of time into uh, figuring out what's going on there if, if, you're, if you want to sound legit at all, right. if you I'm, don't want to sound embarrassing. I was curious about how you went because I think, these days, you're no more as a jazz guitarist. Yeah, I mean, to say it's, it depends. It's funny. It depends to who, right. uh, who you ask. Like, and that's always been the reality with me. And that's the way it, 
you know, my, the main focus of my career, uh, my adult, my whole adult life, uh, has been to be a studio musician. And it's funny that there were always some people that hired me because I could play uh, um, acoustic guitar. And that's all they hired me to play was acoustic guitar because they liked the way I played acoustic guitar. You know? or, and then there, there were other people that hired me, hired me to play country because that's where I came from originally and they knew that and so that I can do in my sleep basically they and that's all they hired me to do other people only hired me to play like uh, Hendrix or, or Eric Clapton and which is funny because I mean that's not my real background but because of the, well like I said a few minutes ago I'm curious I've made it a point to learn okay how did how did he get those sounds what are the signature licks What's what are the uh, you know the iconic things of, of the style right. that make it sound like Hendrix or make it sound you know like Jeff Beck or Clapton or, or Van Halen or whatever you know so so did that come because you work in the studio or did that come because of your curiosity which all of a sudden seemed to work for you in the studio it, it's more more that it but it's both it's it's uh, you know like I had that natural curiosity and it intrigued me I just you know and then on top of it. I realized when I started doing studio work, you in Canada, especially in the United States, like say if you were in LA or Nashville at the time, you could do one thing. If you were really incredible at one thing, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. there was enough work to keep just doing that thing and make a living just doing the thing you love to do, which is fine. Uh, but uh, in Canada, it was never like that. So I realized very quickly, if I wanted to work a lot, I had to show these guys that I could do a lot of different things. So I could already play acoustic guitar because that's the first thing I played was my dad's acoustic guitar. And I grew up playing an acoustic guitar. So I, you know, I had a, a, a natural affinity for that. Um, and then I could play country and, and, you know, as I said, because I grew up doing that. And then, but I had also played with rock bands, uh, including Ronnie Hawkins, a young Canadian icon from Arkansas though, originally. But, right. you know, so I, I played rock and rockabilly and rock and roll. So, I, you know, waited for the opportunity to show them, oh, he can play like Steve Lukather too, right? You know, because I had, you know, that was about the time I started doing studio work was about the time those guys started coming along, emerging like Larry Carlton and mm -hmm. Steve Lukather and, and other guys like that. So I relieved really Rettenauer, et cetera. So I, you know, again, because I was curious and because I realized if I can play like that, I can get more work. I want to talk about your studio work. But before that, I'm curious about the fact that you still do scales for three hours and maybe 20, 30 years ago, you probably did the same thing. Yeah. Are you any better at the scales 30 years later? Like how different would your scale practice now be versus what it used to be? Um, well, it's, I've developed uh, a more of, of, a, of a, a program, put it, let's, let's call it that of uh, a, a system that I have of scales and, and exercises and other things like that that I do um, consistently. And so I have my little program, and if I do that, it takes me about three hours if I do all of it uh, the way I'm supposed to do it. And um, uh, it hasn't changed that much in, in 40 years. It really hasn't changed that much. Uh, it's, it's become a little more defined i mean it hasn't changed in 30 years i'd say the first 10 years it was it was evolving but um one thing that 
uh, one trick that I uh, that I use on myself, and I don't think I play scales. I, I you know I don't know if I play them better than I did. I don't, who knows? You know I have no. I, I hear old records that I played on, and I did sometimes I think who you know like I don't even recognize my own playing because your playing evolves. Right. And so you know like it's so it should. Hopefully it does. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, so sometimes I don't even recognize myself, even though I know I played on that record, uh, but uh, or that TV show or whatever it is. But uh, one little trick, anyway, backing up to the scales that uh, that to me makes all the difference in the world is you know you can play scales, you can go God, I hate this. God, I hate this. I hate this. You know, you can sit there with that attitude, or my trick is and i tell everybody that that will listen to me to try this and just see what kind of results you get is to to play the scales with a metronome at a slow tempo and try and make a boring scale whatever it is a c scale just use that you know as an example try and make that boring c scale sound like a beautiful melody and if you can do that, if you can make each note the same length, the same volume, the same tone with the same attack, and place it in the same place with the metronome, each note of that scale, if you can do that, you can play any melody and make it sound beautiful. Right. So that's the game that I play with myself, is can I make this sound more like a beautiful melody? And it, so it takes it to another level for me. And and it puts another level of of uh, responsibility on me as as a as a musician as a guitar player, and it takes it from being just a boring exercise. So initially, you would learn scales one to know the notes and how to maneuver, probably to do flexibility in your hands and whatever. Is that still the goal? Is there more to it? Like, is there tone now? Is there like I, I, I don't know what the end goal is for you doing scales at this point versus what it was twenty years uh, ago. Well, it's it's just a way of, of getting uh, uh, getting your hands feeling right. That's all it is. It's a, it's you know like there's other ways of doing. It. You can play along with CDs, um, but there's something about uh, you know to to loosen your hands. I mean, you play along with CDs or uh, with the radio, whatever. But there's something. There's there's no way of, of of hiding, and I'll give you another example. Of this in a sec, but there's no you know when it's just the instrument and a metronome in a room, and nothing else. You're not playing along to a CD with with drums and vocals and all or whatever other guitars and other instruments on it, where you you, you can fumble around and it's not really so noticeable. When you strip it down to a, a bare bones instrument and a metronome. It's very obvious whether you whether you've got it together or not, if if you're being honest with yourself, right. and so it it makes you pay more attention to the little details, that uh, um, that make the difference, and it's it's uh, uh, it it's just a good way of loosening your hands up. There's there's a funny story, uh, that, that uh, musicians would relate to if they're listening to this. Um, uh, some journalist was. Uh, uh, interviewing the, the great famous cellist named Pablo Casals and a uh, world-renowned musician and, and he was 92 years old at the time and and he asked the same 
basic question you just did. He said, said Mr. Casals, um, you know, I understand that you know you're 92 years old and you still practice four hours a day. Why is that? And Pablo Casals replied, because I'm beginning to notice some improvement. <laughs> and so that's the the game. Like that's the goal. The goal is, or not the goal, but the you know, uh, the game. I guess if you want to call it that, or the or desire is to be better six months from now than you were six months ago, or to know something six months from now, or even six six days from now that you didn't know six months ago. Like that's always my game, my personal game that I've, I've always played with myself as well. I don't know how to do this. I just heard this thing that somebody this somebody else played. Let's just use the the name Ed Bickert for as an mm-hmm. example. You know, and uh, it was. It was unbelievable. It blew my mind. It was, you know, it was uh, magical. And um, so I'll torture myself if, if I like it that, that much. I mean, I, you know, I have this uh, bullheadedness, if you want to call it bullheaded part of my personality where I say, well, you know, he's, he's got two hands and, and ten fingers and, and six strings and, and the same amount of frets as I do. So, I mean, if he can do that, I should be able to too. I mean, he's a lot smarter than I am, and a lot more talented, and and, and, it, and it, you know, he came, it came to him a lot quicker and earlier. But that's okay. I still am bullheaded enough to think, well, if he can do that, I can figure it out. So I, I will torture myself until I figure it out. If it takes one lick at a time, or one bar at a time, or you know, one note at a time, until I finally put the pieces of that little puzzle together, and then I can say, okay, I've learned how to do this, and I couldn't do that three months ago. Now what's next? So when you learn that lick, um, is there a chance that you will never use it? I mean, is there more likely that you will use it or not use it ever? You just have now you figured it out. It's in your brain, and yeah, well, it becomes it becomes uh, part of uh, your general vocabulary right. by osmosis, and you interpret it into your own into your own world, whatever that is, and. You know, you may end up using it in a completely different uh, um, environment musically, and you know. Like, uh, but I, I'm like, what I was talking about is, I'll sit down and, and learn a solo that's um, three choruses long, that's like, you know, a minute and a half or two minutes worth of, of soloing right. or comping. Like, you know, like that's another thing. You know, that, that I'm constantly preaching to people if if they'll listen to me, is you know, figure out the comping parts as well as the melodic parts because they're just as important and you won't always be playing a mel- the melody or the solo right. you're going to be comping at some point for somebody else who's soloing so that's just as important but um but it you know eventually to your question though more uh, to make it clearer um uh, you know theories are you know are, and everybody has a million theories and it, i don't know if they're how valid they are you know one of my theories is is that we all have um, because of how we learned initially or because of who we are as human beings, um, because of, of our experience with, with music and with the instrument we play, we all have things that we do, whether you're a sax player or a guitar player or a drummer or a piano player or whatever it is. When you pick up your instrument we, uh, and play a certain style, you know, a specific style, a specific kind of music, we all have a couple of things that 
that I, I notice this with my friends and they notice it with me. And, and you know, where you realize that's where that guy comes from, mm. you know, so um, that's for sure. Like you have a couple things, you know, maybe two or three or four things that you do that people can say, well, that's who he really is. But it's nice to be able to do, and, and because of the studio work that we talked about earlier, it's nice to be able to do um, 30, 30, 50 things like that. You like to, to make people believe that that's who you are. That's right. part of that, of having a career in the studio. That was part of the game. But inevitably, no matter how good at you get at imitating Ed Bickert or Eddie Van Halen, when you play the thing that really is your natural, in, in your natural wheelhouse, you know, innate to who you are and, and to your experience uh, growing up, people will recognize it immediately. Other good, like good musicians will go, that's what you are. Right. That's what you really are. You can fool me. Like, you know, you just surprised me by playing, you know, that that uh, jazz thing or that that metal thing or whatever, you know, but but that's what you really are is that right there. You know, but, but you know, good for you that you can do both things or you can do all those things, right? So I have to ask, was, has there ever been a lick that you couldn't figure out? <laughs> oh, I think, I'm sure there has, yeah. I'm, I'm positive there has. I mean, I, I can't, you know, name any specific instances. But yeah, you know, there's no question. There's, there's, there's you know, there's things that, either that, it's either I couldn't figure it out, or I, I could figure it out, but I just physically couldn't play it. Because somebody, you know, like another thing that enters into it is, is, the other person's hands and their, their, right. their natural ability. I mean, I, I've, I have, for example, there's, there's one, uh, there's one West Montgomery solo in particular that comes to mind and it's a whole solo. It's not just a lick. It's, it's, it's usually not ever just a lick. Cause that's, I mean, there's a couple of things that I've, you know, I've struggled with. There's a million things I've struggled with, but a couple of obvious ones to me, but for this West Montgomery solo is a good example uh, that, I figured it out note for note and it went on forever. I mean, it was like three or four minutes of him playing a solo right. and I wrote the whole thing out. Like I, I actually forced, this was 20 years ago, maybe 15. And I, I forced myself to sit with a pencil and a piece of paper and the guitar and, and go through this, this solo note by note and bar by bar. And, and I wrote it all out. And I had it on, on paper, and I couldn't play it. I just did not have the ability physically to play what he played. And so I, I got mad at myself, of course, and, uh, <laughs> and I put that away for a couple of years. And then uh, a couple of years uh, you know, down the road, I was you know, sitting there one day thinking, well, what am I going to do today? You know, what am I gonna, how am I going to torture myself today? Right? And I thought, you know what? I am going to force myself to learn to play that West Montgomery solo. And I, I just, you know, I did it uh, over, I don't know, it might have taken a few months. It might have taken a month or two months or more. I don't know. It took me months. I know that. Um, Till I could play it and fluently and without you know without stumbling and, and and you know so the of course the first thing is you have to memorize the whole thing right and you have to you know it, it has become a, a, a composition like it becomes a melody uh, which is what it is like that's what you know um, soloing um, um, a, li- a live soloist is 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 creating music 
in in a live context immediately like mm-hmm. as is is you know uh like you're breathing you know they're they're creating uh music spontaneously right and um that's what a solo is but it, it's like creating a melody live and, and in, in in that moment spontaneously so it's you know it's not always that easy to figure out because it can be pretty convoluted and and west montgomery's a much better guitar player than i am and i think you know like i said it's because of the style that he he played the way he played and probably because he's got better hands than i do maybe you know so that that was one instance of something that i just couldn't play i could figure it out but i couldn't play and then i beat myself up enough to the point where i can play it now uh other things i've given up on i mean like you know uh, some uh, Lenny Bro things or whatever that I just don't have the hands to do that or that's not in my experience right. you know like in my my musical experience I just you know if, for example he studied flamenco guitar f- for a while I never did that so I'm you know I, I'm not going to pick up a, a, guitar, a classical guitar and play like the flamenco guy it's not going to happen do you remember the first thing you ever figured out that you thought wow this is cool uh yeah the, the, it, that's what well, that's that's when the penny dropped it. That's what did it for me. Um, the the first thing was uh, was freight train, for Chad Atkins, uh, and I I mean it, it was. I'll try and tell you the story as quickly as possible. But uh, um, the one of the times you asked me earlier about my if my dad was ever a professional musician, and one of the times that he took a uh, one of the two times I think maybe that he took a, a stab at it was. Uh, uh, with a Canadian artist named Gary Buck, and uh, Gary Buck and his whole band were from Sault Ste. Marie, and so part of playing, my dad wanted to go on the road with Gary Buck and and uh, try and to have one more stab at it. And I was about, uh, I had just turned 14 years old, and uh, but to play with Gary Buck's band, my, we all we had to move to Sault Ste. Marie. As I said earlier, I'm I'm an only child. So we moved to Sault Ste. Marie the day after I'm done grade eight. Now, I've lived in Chatham, Ontario my whole life. Right. So you move to Sault Ste. Marie, you don't know one human being, nobody. My dad goes off on the road. My mother goes and gets a job because we need the money. I'm in an apartment by myself with a guitar and a bunch of records. And uh, I just started you know I it just started evolving I just sat there I thought well I'm gonna try and learn to play you know some of these songs these you know like because I had a few few records a bunch of Chet Atkins records and uh, a one record by Tennessee Ernie Ford with a, a really great guitar player named Billy Strange on it and it was just guitar and vocal and so I listened to these records and I just started you know working at it that summer and I you know first started with it because the Chet Atkins thing is the, th- the thumb pick and the fingers and it's uh, you know you're doing two different things basically right it's it's uh, rubbing your head your your tummy and patting your head at the right. same time it's doom dick doom dick doom dick doom dick and then the melody doom dick doom dick doom dick doom dick so I you know I would doom dick doom dick I got that going doom dick doom dick doom dick doom dick doom dick 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 Either I'm both stupid and bullheaded, I guess. I just would not let it go because I had nothing else to do. And so uh, that went on for a couple months, maybe five, six weeks at least. And then I woke up one day and I picked up the guitar, the same guitar I had my hand the day before, you know, the night before. 
And I went to ding 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 and there it was. And I went, it was like it was playing itself. Wow. And it's, so it's it's muscle memory, right? Yeah, yeah. But it was like it was just doing it itself. And I went, holy crap, I can do this. Oh wow. And that's when it hit me. That's when I thought, uh, well, you know, the uh, uh, the other thing that happened was. Um, I was always horrible at sports. I mean, the, you know, the last guy to get picked for anything, <laughs> any team for anything, just, just absolutely brutal. Right. So all of a sudden you're 14 years old and you got guys that are 35 years old saying, Hey, how did you do that? How did you, just, what is that? What'd you just play? How did you do that? And I went, aha, bingo. I found something. I can't play baseball. I can't play hockey. You know, I'm too small for football, that's for sure. And I'm in basketball, that's never going to happen. But all of a sudden, guys are, you know, uh, give me a pat on the back for, you know, something that I love to do. And so, okay, now I've, I've found my thing. That's what I'm going to do. So that's kind of where it all came from. How did you get into the studio musician work? Uh, <laughs> absolutely by luck. I'm going to knock on whatever time I say that. Absolutely by luck. Um, and good fortune, and and uh, um, you were in a band. I I know that you didn't really enjoy the road life or the band life. Yeah, I mean, I I, I enjoyed the playing, but I started to look forward down the road at guys that you know. And at, by this time, I was twenty one years old or something like that. Twenty twenty one years old. I started when I was seventeen, right? So now it's been four years, basically. I started to look down the road at guys who were 35 and 40, and I, and I thought, this doesn't look, that doesn't look too pretty. It's f- cool when you're a teenager. It's cool when you're 20, 20, even 25. It's, it's, yeah, that's okay. But this is really going nowhere. The people I'm playing with are just going around in circles, playing the same bars, and nothing's changing or getting better. I, I thought it was going to evolve into something else. So, what would that something else be? Playing in soft sea theaters? Is that what you mean? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe playing with a rock star, you know, play, playing in a rock band, but, but playing with a famous band or playing right. with, with somebody famous or whatever, you know. And, um, uh, so there was that aspect of it that, that, that was what I thought would be the next sort of logical step, right? I never dreamed, I never knew that that you could be, I mean, I, I knew that you could be a studio musician, but I never dreamed that, that, that I could do that or that that would be a possibility. So, um, the other reality was, uh, I, I, a lot of my friends were moving, were going to Nashville and I never wanted to go to Nashville. It just, just didn't interest me. Um, and the other thing I decided was I didn't want to be American. I wanted to come back home. I wanted right. to come to Canada, and um, uh, won't get into in, in any more details than that about that. But I, I just wanted to come home, so I I came back to Canada. Um, came back to Chatham, where I'm from. Was there for a little while, you know, like a, a few weeks, and then realized, well, I have to, I have to do something. I have to go somewhere and get a job, you know, get a gig, and uh, through a. Uh, that friend that my dad had played with when I was uh, 14, Gary Buck, he was uh, had a lot of influence in Toronto and in the music scene. So I, I called him and just asked him if he knew anybody that might be able to point me in the, in the direction of you know the, somebody that was looking for a guitar player. And he gave me the name of a couple people, 
I ended up with a job. Was playing again, playing bars in in Ontario, but then I ran into a, f- a few other musicians that I uh, those two that I had met originally in the states. Who called you, Peppy? Who, who called me, Peppy? Where the nickname came from? I ran into them, and they were doing some studio work for uh, uh, you know, as, as I like to say it or as, as I call it, they, they, there was a record company back then and, and they were doing some work for this record company and it was basically really bad records for all, for horrible money. But, <laughs> but it was an opportunity to, to get into a recording studio. And I'd been in a recording studio when I was like 15 and 16 with my dad's band um, in Toronto and then once in Detroit when I was there. And, and you know... Um, those were just teenager experiences, basically. Uh, but when I was 21 and I s- started playing with, with some of the, the, the guys in Toronto, some of some, you know, not the, 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 the famous guys in Toronto, the big, the big shots or whatever, just guys that were in my circle of friends that were playing in bars. Uh, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe there's a possibility, you know, like if you could, even with these kind of low budget sessions where you're not making much money, number one, it's an apprenticeship, uh, which you're not going to get anywhere else any other way in, into how to, you know, how to get a sound in the recording studio to learn how to play, uh, with other musicians in the studio to, to, uh, to learn what is, what's important to bring to the table as a studio musician. So, I thought, well, if I could do a little bit of this, if I could play in bars, do a little bit of this, and then maybe if I was lucky enough, maybe just to have a TV or show, show or something like that, like a regular TV show, that would be the absolute maximum that I could ever dream of, and that would be out of this world. And I could survive, and you know, it would be, uh, I could have a career. So that's, that's how it started. I, I did, and I did those kind of records for, uh, for about three years. And uh, then I, I started getting called to do some TV shows in that same period. And uh, uh, there was a lot of network TV back then, like uh, Variety TV, if you remember the, the early, the, the whole decade of the, you know, the, the, the 70s, which it, that had all started in the 50s, but uh, in my time was the 70s. And there was uh, you know, a lot of musical Variety TV shows. Right. So all, are you actually performing on camera or are you put playing music in the background? No, most of the time on camera. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, with these, because there's, there's always guests. There's, uh, you know, the, all, all the famous artists of the time, whoever they were, you know, what, what, depending upon the, the style of music you were, the, the, uh, the, sh- the TV show was uh, showcasing, right? Um, so, you know, I, I ended up playing on some country shows because I, I, that's what was my background. And then it evolved into other kinds of shows too, you know. Uh, so uh, it was all that was my sort of my learning experience, and or my my apprenticeship. And then, uh, luckily for me, uh, very you know, again more good luck than good management. Just not knowing any better, um, I, I I did some demos for a, a Canadian singer songwriter. Uh, at a studio in, in Toronto uh, called, uh, uh, well, it was for a gentleman named, a gentleman named Ben McPeak owned the studio, and it was called Captain Audio. I just forgot the name for a second. That was his studio in, in Yorkville. And Ben had been a, Ben McPeak himself was like a, a major force in the Toronto jingle industry in, this, in the, I think, 50s and 60s. And 
he was he was in his late 40s at the time. It was kind of winding down a little bit for him, but he was still very active. So I, I did some demos at his studio, not for him, but at his studio. And the engineer that was that worked for him and worked at the studio, uh, I don't know if he liked me or felt sorry for me, but uh, he, the next day apparently said to Ben McPeak, he said, you know, I, this, I worked with this kid last night. He's, you know, I think he's pretty good. You should hire him. And I found out later, because I was always wondering, why is this man calling me to do recording sessions? Because, you know, I have no right business at all being here. But uh, I found out later that Ben was the kind of guy that had given a lot of musicians and singers uh, a leg up. If he thought you had some, some potential or, or the ability to do it in the studio, he would give you the opportunity and keep giving it to you if you showed him that you were working at it and that you were, you know, you were really keen. So uh, I, I, I got a call from, there was a lady uh, that, uh, named Bev Crompt that, that was his contractor, the book musicians and singers for, for Ben McPeak. And she called me after, I did, after this uh, engineer had given Ben my name. And she said, uh, uh, you know, told me who she was and what she did. She said, I'd like to book you on a, on a, a, on a session for Ben McPeak she, uh, for a jingle uh, like next Wednesday or something. And, and I, I was stupid enough and naive enough that I said, what's a jingle? <laughs> Honestly, I was that dumb. You know, I knew what a record was, but I didn't right. know what a jingle was, right? So I, uh, she, she said, well, you know, it's a TV commercial, a radio commercial, whatever. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, the, the, uh, the wheels started spinning. I realized, yeah, there is music behind those, those things. Yeah, there's songs and there's music. Okay, great. I said, sure. So I didn't know what to expect, and I show up at, this, at his studio with my guitar and an amp, and, and uh, I was told, you know, bring an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar, and, and he put a chart in front of me, and uh, then all of a sudden the truth came out. I couldn't really read. Uh, I couldn't read music at all. I couldn't read notes right. on the staff at all, and I could sort of get through a chord chart if the chords were very simple. But I really, I didn't know the names of any of, uh, like some of the chords I could play, but I didn't know the names of them. So I had never seen that, like, you know, for example, A flat, six, nine. I'd never seen that on a piece of paper. I, I knew what that was on the guitar, and I knew what it sounded like, but I didn't know that was the name of that chord. And so I just, you know, I, uh, so I'm looking at, you know, the, the, all of a sudden all these things came crashing down on me at the same time. And uh, that's how the, you know, backing up a long way from, our, from the start of our conversation, that's part of how, the obsession with practicing and playing scales came from is I did about five or six uh, sessions for Ben McPeak and he liked me enough or whatever to is or felt sorry for me as I like to say to keep hiring me but the other guys on the session were getting annoyed the other you know people playing on the sessions and so now I'm in the world of the big shots in Toronto you know the Guido Bassos and Mo Kaufmans and and uh, you know Jack Zaza and all these guys and Tom Sesniak, Doug Riley, and you know all you know Brian Barlow and you know, Eric Robertson. About the names go on and on and on. Um, so I'm playing with all these guys, but I cannot read music, and it was absolutely essential. There was no, it never happened like it does now, where somebody just gives you a chord chart and says, "Go ahead and make something up," which is is another part of the studio world. Well, I I'd like to touch on if we have right. time, but uh, but back then it was you know this is here it is, and if there's notes on the page. Therefore, you to play, and you're usually doubling 
another instrument, you know, a saxophone or the string section or, you know, a, you know, an oboe or whatever. And those guys aren't going to make a mistake. So when you do, <laughs> you really look like a dummy. So uh, after about five or six of those sessions, uh, a gentleman that worked for Ben a lot named Jack Zaza, who, who I, I, we all love, and I, I love him uh, more than most because he was so kind to me. Uh, but he, he grabbed me and said, hey, kid, come on outside. And I said, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he took me outside and he said, uh, you got a piece of paper and a pencil? And I said, well, the first thing he said, actually, he said, uh, do you want to do this for a living? And I said, oh, yes, sir, Mr. Zaza. You know, like a 12-year-old kid, right? Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Zaza, yeah, I do. He said, well, you know, uh, you got to learn to at least read eighth notes. You got to be able to keep up because you're pissing us off, basically. <laughs> you know, and I'm surprised uh, they didn't fire you. Well, they they, they couldn't fire me. No, ben, but, only Ben could. Yeah. You know, but they could complain enough that he would, eventually. Like if I didn't get my, act but you must together. have been good enough that they didn't do that. Well, I I, I guess you know I, I guess there were certain things that I did that they liked. Um, they liked the way I played certain things and, and were willing to put up with that at the expense of uh, having to do you know, more takes than they wanted to do because the guitar player couldn't keep up. Right. So, but he, he took me outside and he said, you know, do you want to do this for a living? I said, yes, sir, Mr. Zaza. So he said, well, go outside and get a piece of paper and a pencil. So I come back out and he's writing something on this piece of paper. And he says, you got a metronome? I said, yeah, I, yes, sir, I do. He said, okay. He said, go get these two books. One's a clarinet book and one's a trumpet book. They're both in the same range as the guitar. And they're both just full of exercises. You cannot memorize them because they're all different. So you can't rely on memorizing because I know that's what you do. You rely on memorizing things, right? Hearing it, memorizing it, then you can play it. But he said, you can't do that with these books. You sit with a metronome and these books and learn to read eighth notes. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Zaza, you know. So as luck would have it, and I've told a lot of people this story, I worked for, because I worked for Ben, I worked for everybody, all the other writers in town once and once only. And it became very clear to me why right away, because I couldn't keep up. Ben was willing to put up with it for a certain amount of time, but they weren't. They just, you know, time is money. They got 50 musicians or 10 musicians, whatever it is. And there's not enough time to wait for the guitar player to figure out his part that's written on the page. He's supposed to be able to play it, you know, and that's the way the system works. So I sat eight hours a day uh, playing scales and uh, or and, and playing these exercises in these books and then scales and working with the metronome and working on reading and uh, i even found a gentleman to help me for about six months take some took some lessons just specifically on working on on the reading uh and uh and then you know as luck would have it every few months one of those guys that had hired me once would be desperate and all the other guitar players would be busy and they'd say well we have no choice we're the only other guy we know is that that kid francis and we i guess we got to hire him so they would hire me and i'd go work for them and they'd say hey at the end of the gig they, they you know and they all did they all they all said hey you've improved you've improved quite a bit and i said well i'm killing myself trying so we'll keep it up keep going because you're doing better you're doing really good and i went you're getting better and i went oh okay well then you know that's all i needed was a little bit of of a pat on the back and I was you know back uh, practicing eight, eight or ten hours a day now and so you know I, I wanted I realized at that point in my life this is my golden opportunity this is the thing I, I didn't even know existed 
and I dreamed of, but I didn't even know that it existed. This was this was the dream that I didn't even know could happen. Can I happen. ask you why it was dream? Like, is it because because it's a different discipline? Yeah, it's not writing your own songs. It's not performing your own stuff. It's it's a completely different environment. Is it is it because it's a steady job? Is it because because it's not a steady job? Is no. it because there's better money? Like. Well, it, it was it was a bunch of it was an accumulation of those things and other things. It was number one uh, because I didn't have an education, as I said earlier. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, um, I had two options. It was either learn how to read music and kill myself hoping that this might work out and I might survive in this world, in this in the recording studio with these musicians. Uh, and, or my other option was the warehouse of Canadian Tire, right. or pumping gas, or you know whatever, right? And so this was a lot better than that. The other thing I really, you know, that that in also many other things intrigued me. Uh, some of the financial aspects of it, of course, it was you know there, there was good money to be made. I looked at all these guys driving Jags and Mercedes and living in Yorkville. These guys living like living like doctors and lawyers, you know. And I thought I'd like some of that. You know, I'd, I'd like that. That'd be good. But then the, the most important part of it for me was the opportunity to, to sit beside and work with the best musicians in this country that are as good as any, any musicians in the world, uh, like Guido Basso and, and Mo Kaufman and Doug Riley and Tom Sasniak and all these guys, work with them and work with the best recording engineers and the best writers and the best producers, and the best, and the best, and the best of everything, in the music world. And it was that—that that was the dream come true for me. That was the absolute like this is, like walking in into, uh, you know, into a, a candy store when you're a kid. It was or walking into heaven or something. I don't know. You know, walking in, into the world of bliss. It was like, these are the best musicians, as good as any musicians on earth. They're at the at their prime, because uh, they were all, you know, most of them were, were a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were 10, 15, 20 years older than me, and they're absolutely kicking ass, and they're they're you know they're just killers. Can you can you explain that? Can when you walked in and so you, you had the disadvantage of not being able to read, so you're 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 in a position of um, being inferior to this situation, but. What made them like? Could you identify that these were the best? Like, was oh, gosh, it immediately? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. There's no question. I mean, when you see fifty, you know, or it doesn't matter whether it's fifty musicians or ten musicians or whatever. But when you see somebody just drop a chart in front of them and start and say, "Okay, here we go," you know, and you hear a click in your headphones and they start counting it in and they they nail it, and it's a complicated piece of music. You know, you you're, I, I knew enough to know this is complicated. That's not a walk in the park. That's not Marietta Little Lamb. You know, like these guys are killing it the first time, every time. Like this is another whole, whole other level. You know, and, and it's, it's like going from uh, uh, the, the little leagues to, to the major leagues, you know, in one big jump, you know, like from going from being a 10-year-old playing little league ball to, to being, you know, an adult playing in the major leagues, you know, with the best of the best in one, just one jump. You know, one like just step from outside the door into the door, and there you are in that world. You know, and it was magical. That's what it really was to me. It was magical, and 
that's part of why backing up a little bit that I still practice so much because I felt I was first of all I had to learn to read music which was a lot of work you know so it was I would have rather tried to learn to, to read the you know the Chinese newspaper you know or, or whatever you know it would, it would have been easier probably or at that point it might have been easier I don't know but it was really hard but it was a magical world with all this talent and all this great music and all this stuff going on. And, and I just thought, I, like, this is the dream that I, I never even knew existed. But I felt so insecure. And not, not insecure, well, I felt insecure, but I also felt overwhelmed with the fact that they were so far ahead of me. And so I always felt like I had to, to bust my rear end to catch up. And that's why I still practice as much as I do. I think. I think but, that's. I think it's a psychology, psychological thing. But you have that. You have, obviously. Like, what amazes me is one that you had that discipline back then, and you still do. Two is that at the age of twenty-one or in your early twenties, you realized that there must be other ways of doing this and recognizing that because twenty-one is still young. Yeah. And to think, oh no, I need to try to figure out how to get out of bars and maybe look at other opportunities. And then to, to be presented this opportunity where they could have fired you very quickly, somehow oh, yes. you, you managed to survive and, and then convinced them that you were going to get better, in which you did. That's phenomenal. Well, I, 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 you know, I think, again, it's, it's, I was lucky, number one, to be in, in, in the right place at the right time. Um, they were also, there was room. A couple things had changed. A couple of guitar players that were there was there was a basic list at that time of, of four guitar players, four drummers, uh, like the, the, these are the four guys that get hired all the time. Four bass players, four p- piano players. You know, these are the trumpet players that get hired all the time. Sax players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they hire all the TSO people for the orchestral stuff. So a couple of the, those guitar players were moving on to different things, like one of them to become a writer. Uh, he just decided, you know, he, he wanted to be a writer. He didn't want to really be a, a, a guitar player anymore. So all of a sudden, there was, there was a spot open. I just happened to be there at that time. And I happened to uh, also, you know, if you remember the 70s, there was that, you know, there was a movie that, that John Travolta was in that, that was about uh, country music or something like that. I think. Urban Cowboy. Yeah, Urban Cowboy. Bingo. Thank you. And, and then there was Glenn Campbell with the Rhinestone Cowboy hit, and, and Glenn Campbell was a star at the time. So there, there was a movement in the music world where, well, we need a guy that can play like that. So they found me, and immediately I could play like that without thinking. All they had to do was give me chords and let me go, let me do go and I could do that. But So that was fine, but when they started saying, okay, well, you know, if you're going to do this, you can't just do that all the time. Like I said earlier, in Toronto, in Nashville or LA or something, that would be a different story. But yeah, that's the guy that does that. Keep hiring him just to do that. And, right. But you get stuck in that world, right? You get pegged as that, and that's all, all they want you to do, no matter, even if you can do other things. But uh, in Toronto, it was like, okay, well, that's fine and well, but if you want to work all the time, and if you want to be one of the regular four on that list of four guys, you have to be able to play a bossa nova on the classical guitar. You know, you have to know the right clave and be able to play the right rhythm parts and, and, be, and be able to read the melody that they write for you to play. And, and you have to be able to play rock and roll and, and you have to be able to, you know, uh, uh, double the, the, the strings with the melody in this orchestral piece. And, uh, and, and it's just a necessity. If you want to be one of those 
top four guys. And I, I realized right away, that's what I want. I wanted to be one of those guys. That's fairly ambitious, but uh, you know, I, I was stupid enough to think that it could happen, and it ended up happening. How long ago? How long did you have from the time that you first started and realized I need to learn how to read? And you said it took six months, a year, or more to it, learn to read. It, yeah, it was two years before I was really comfortable. It was about a year before I could actually keep up. Okay. And then it was two years before I believed that I could keep up. But in the in that first year of keeping up, you weren't losing a lot of jobs. You were still given opportunities. I was given opportunities, yeah. And well, you know what I used to do is as uh, many ways as I could. I mean, I, I um, again, it was a different in, in environment back then. Um, the writers would write a score and uh, send it over to a copyist who copied all the music, and he, those those. People stayed up all night copying music. Uh, there were, you know, a, a few, uh, a, two or three of them that were work, just worked, and they probably slept all day. And they worked, they were, they worked at night. That's what they did. And they would show up with uh, uh, the music all written out for, you know, for or for fifty-piece orchestra or more or whatever, or or a rhythm section or whatever it was. And they would, you know, deliver it to the studio themselves in the morning or the afternoon, whenever the session was. So I would get to the studio an hour early and try and get there, you know, at the same time the copyist got there or hope that he got there early and get the guitar part and sit there and study it before the other guys showed up. So that's one of the, the you know, the things I did to try mm-hmm. and, you know, to, 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 uh, to make it easier for myself and to convince them that I was getting better and, and that I, you know, that I could do this. So, I, you know, I would do things like that. And, you know, I had a lot of people that were mentors, a lot of people that were great to me. I mean, so I had couple of people that weren't so nice to me but I but they were much smaller percentage I I had a lot of great musicians that were really really kind to me and really looked after me like tried to help me like literally would come over during the middle of a session like for example that's a, a, a certain piano player uh, you know that, that came over one day and and uh, we we had the same chord chart and uh, he heard me with with a rhythmic thing written out in the middle of it it was kind of complicated and he heard heard me scuffling and so he came over while they were talking about something else uh the the uh the leader on the session and and the horn players who were talking about some horn parts or whatever he came over and whispered in my ear take your earphones off and i took my head headset off headphones and he said uh, look i've got these two bars covered i'll play it you don't need to do it just play just play before and after don't play those two bars it'll be cool and they won't notice i'm like okay Thanks. And he went back, sat down. We played the track. They said, that sounds great. That was perfect. And I looked at him. He looked at me and winked, and that was the end of it. But he saved my butt. You know, he covered for me. And you know, so I had a lot of people like that. And there were a couple other guitar players. Excuse me. I sound like a 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple other guitar players, uh, namely Bob Mann and Brian Russell, who were, uh, and Jim Peary as well, a, a third one, but mainly Bob and Brian, who... Uh, were like the guys, the absolute two best guitar players, you know, studio guitar players in Toronto at the time. And uh, they were both extremely kind and generous. So it wasn't competitive? No, it wasn't. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like that. And that's the way I was taught. Uh, like I, I was taught that if a new guy comes along and he's got potential, the same as the, the, you know, the, the comment about Ben McPeak, if you see a guy and he's, He's got potential. 
and he's sincere and he's a, he's a good guy, give him a hand. Put your hand out and give him, give him a hand and, and help him along. That's how I was taught. So I've, you know, ho- hopefully I've, I've uh, and I think I've done the same thing with other people that have come along uh, after me, you know, uh, that I've been able to help because I was given that, you know, by these guys, you know, the, especially Bob Mann and Brian Russell who, who just said, yeah, hey, man, don't, don't worry. All that is is this, and they'd play it for me. I go, oh, yeah. They say, yeah, you you got that. Don't worry about it. Just relax. You know, you got it. Or they would switch parts with me if my part was, if somehow I got the more complicated part and I couldn't play it. They they knew it right away. They would just reach over to my music stand, take my part, and give me theirs. Say here, play, play the rhythm part, and I'll play this. Great, because you know the the people inside the booth don't care who plays what. Really, usually they don't care who plays what part. They just want to hear it. And they want it to be right, and they, and they want to get get it done and move on. So a couple of things. One one is that I have proof that you did pass it on because when I did an interview with Roly Platt, he talked about how helpful you were in that environment for him, and basically kind of explained a situation that was very similar to what you went through and how helpful mm-hmm. you were to him. And then the other thing I wonder about is, at this point, are you playing? Outside of the studio environment, are you trying to have a musical career? Are you playing in the bars at all, or uh, yeah. have you given that up? No, I, I, I mean, it's, it's fun to go play. It's always fun to go play. So, uh, especially if you're with the right people, so uh, or people you like and people that are fun to play with. So, I've got a, um, as we talked about earlier before the interview, uh, my wife and I, I got really tired and just burned out about 13 years ago, and mm-hmm. and so we moved to Coburg, which is a smaller community outside of Toronto and I uh, I have a, a young bass player and I, I wanted to, to uh, um, you know I decided I wanted to to try and and, and put myself in a sit- in a position a situation where I I could uh, could work on playing some jazz standards and work on that that sorry. style sorry I meant at this point in the in your career, when you started doing the studio work, oh okay, were you doing only studio work, or were you also playing? Oh okay, okay. But thanks for telling me that, which we'll talk to about. But okay, I, I didn't understand the question. I'm I'm sorry, I apologize. But yeah, I w- for a while I was still playing live. Uh, I'm still playing bars up for a year or so. The first year that I was yeah, I, I, so I you know I was playing bars at night and then getting up in the morning and practicing eight hours a day and then playing the bar and then getting up practicing eight hours a day and doing the uh, the odd session right, and, uh, and and at and then the second year of that uh, that period I I was on the road a little bit uh, uh, with a, a, an incredibly talented guy named Jesse Winchester, songwriter and singer from uh, from yeah, Memphis, yeah. and uh, and it, that was a real learning experience too because he was such a, a huge talent and such a you know a great example of this is how the big boys do it like this is what it takes and this is the real deal he was the real deal and you know that that whole southern the, the thing that i love because and the, the funny thing is 90 percent or more of the guys that i played with when i played in the states were all from the south so i learned to play the way they play and the, the guys from the south play this is a uh, you know uh, um, uh, a debatable um, comment uh, could be debated by many musicians, but I, th- I think most would agree. Um, Southern musicians play eighth notes, for example, different than the guys from New York or the guys from Canada, 
And so I learned to play eighth notes the way those guys did, and which is not a big deal. That's that I'm not make, saying that that's uh, you know that that makes your career. It's just I learned to play with guys like that. And when I and then when I played live with Jesse, I, I went, oh yeah, this is I remember all this. This is exactly what uh, what my education was like when I was on the road. The guys that I that I learned how to play feel and time with. So I'm interested in finding out. Did you? Was there any point that you wanted to be your own artist, or were you happy being um, a support player for somebody like Jesse Winchester? And also, how how different was your approach to music when you were gigging with somebody like him versus going into the studio and doing the studio work? Well, if to, the first question uh, to answer it, I, I never ever had I, I never had any desire to be the guy out front. To be the artist, none whatsoever. That was was not my ambition. Never has, never will be uh, to to be the person out front. I love being the guy that's not in the spotlight and that's there to support the guy that's in the spotlight, and being part of the band. And uh, that's the world I'm comfortable in. That's where I like to be. And and then it'll the, the other thing I realized when I was young is, you know it. it Becoming a star, or becoming a Jesse Winchester, or, or whoever it is, is is like trying to get in the NHL or or, the, or you know Major League Baseball or whatever. So you got a lot better chance at being a sideman, right. and, and and you can work for all those stars, and you so you you have a lot better chance of, of being you know of being a working musician. And that's I guess was my my uh, um, not not like that didn't limit me that just gave me more opportunity mm -hmm. in my mind and that's where i was comfortable anyway so that was my instinct is to be that that guy especially if you're working with the big leagues right yeah 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 you know when you when you are lucky enough to to get in that world so and then you know how different was that from the studio i mean at at, at first uh, well the studio was a combination of a lot of things uh you know working with uh, doing doing what I would call uh, affectionately industrial work, industrial music like jingles, TV shows, uh, is a lot different than doing records mm -hmm. for people because with with people's records, um, the, the reason you get hired to do the jingles and the TV shows is because you can grind through a lot of music fast. You can you can read the notes. You can read the charts you can get you know we have a big stack of music to and only three hours to to accomplish it in and you can keep up with all those guys and that's a big challenge and it's and then you feel good about you know i felt good about myself anyway that i could do that and keep up with those guys because i was so far behind when i started so so you know when i kind of got to that point where i was accepted by them and 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 it you know i didn't feel like i was a you know a a, a 10 year old anymore uh, in, in an adult world, it was that was very gratifying. But then the other side of the recording world was okay. So there's that that part that challenge. But then when you go to play on somebody's record, what they're looking for is your ideas, um, and that's what a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know a lot of people who haven't had the experience would wouldn't understand it. Uh, even even musicians who haven't had the experience of, of working on a lot of records, but you know they they hire you for your ability, but they also hire you as much for your the ideas that you bring to the table as they do for your ability to play. 
But you you did more jingles and corporate work first. Yes. Then started to doing other people's recordings. Well, no, there was always they were always no, they were always going hand in hand. Okay. Uh, while I would because you know I was still you know as as you said earlier I was still playing bars for a couple years approximately. I don't know. It gets a little fuzzy because it was all long, a long time ago. But I, I was uh, um, you know doing. Playing, I was doing records first before I was doing the corporate music or the okay. in, you know industrial work, right? The, you know the, the jingles and the TV shows. So I was playing on records. That's how it started. The studio work started for me, and then, but it, it was on a lower level. With, you know, with not you know, you know uh, like I said, you know, not the greatest projects for very little money, but it was an apprenticeship. And then, uh, and I managed to stumble into this other world with where it was the real deal. Uh, with with these guys that were all incredible and all a million times better than I was, and uh, but I liked that challenge and, and so they they were always hand in hand. And then I, I realized at one point the reason I was able to go on the road with Jesse Winchester was uh, that opportunity came along, and uh, I realized oh I don't have to do bars anymore. Like that was you know mm-hmm. because I. I just thought, well, I, I, you know, I always thought that this recording session was going to be the last one I ever do, the one I'm doing right now. For sure, this is going to be the last. Like, they're going to figure out that I can't play. You know, the, <laughs> okay. like, somebody's going to figure out how crummy I am, and I'm not going to get a call ever again. Right? That that was always in the back of my mind because when I started, I was so far behind all of them. Right? But you said it took you two to three years to get to the point where you've caught up. Well, not caught up, but I mean, we're uh, you're comfortable. You know, it took me two years before I, I, I believed that I could keep up with, with the reading, just the reading right, part okay. of it. Uh, and, and so you got, I, I'm, I can't compartmentalize all these things, right? Because they're all different skills. Um, so And the reading was imperative at that point. And so if I hadn't done that, I would have been out the door long right. before. So, uh, you know, but the, so I was still playing bars. And then the Jesse Winchester thing came along. And I'd, I'd been doing sessions with these you know, so-called big shots, as I said, you know, the, the real, the real big time people in Toronto. And, um, and I realized, oh, that, you know, first of all, it might be cool to go on the road with somebody like him. And it was, uh, and then I don't have to play bars because mm-hmm. I was really, really, really sick of it by then and tired of it. And, it, you know, it, I mean, it was magical because, you know, unfortunately for the kids that come out of schools and stuff now or the, that try and do it now, whether they go to school or not, they can't make a living playing six nights in a, a week in a bar. Right. I could make a living, have an apartment and a used car and some furniture and a TV, and I was, you know, doing okay. Just playing in bars and then doing some of these other, you know, low-budget sessions. And, uh, and I was a happy guy. So, but that but it also gave me the opportunity to become a better player because you're playing six nights a week, right? And that makes you a better musician. It just does. So by the time I got to the into the world with you know into the next level up in the studio world, or a few levels up, honestly, I, you know, I had the innate abilities that were necessary as a musician. I just didn't have the skill to read music. I didn't have that skill to to back me up. But I, you know, I already knew, and, and I grew up around enough different music. As I said, my mother liked Nat King Cole and Perry Coleman, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, I knew how to play bossa nova. You know, like 
I just heard it and knew, okay, yeah, that, yeah, I know what he's doing. I know what that guy's doing. So, you know, or whatever the style was, you know, I knew how to do the, a lot of these things or how to play big band music, how to play like Freddie Green uh, from the Count Basie band, you know, which is, I had heard that as a kid and I knew what it was and it made sense to me. And it wasn't hard for me to do uh, for some reason. I, I was lucky that way. And, uh, and I always liked, the other thing is, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, some, not a lot, but, but a, a few musicians decide at a certain point, at a very early point in their life, this is the way I play. And that's good enough. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I'm happy. I'm content. But I never was. I was always thinking, well, I want to learn this. I want to learn that. I was always curious, as I said earlier. So, uh, you know, that's why the studio for me was a perfect world. Because every time you walked in, in, in the room, into a, every time you walked into a studio with a guitar and your, and your amp, it was something different. It was a different style of music with different musicians, a different writer and a different producer that had different expectations and wanted a certain things to be this way or that way, that different than the, the guy you just worked for, the people you just worked with you know, two hours ago or the day before or, or that will you work with the day after. It was always different. And I love that. I love the challenge of that, and right. it, you know, you you know that from the work you do. Right. I know, you know, from the from all the different variety of work that yeah, you do. Yeah, for sure. It, it's always, you know, like that's what kind of drove me, and excited me. I, I was eating that up, where other guys would have ran and said, "No, I don't want to do that. That's too much trouble to learn to to play that style or that." I just want to do what I do, and I, I get that, uh, and and to each his own. But to, for me, it was like, no, no, I I love that. I love that challenge. So. When you're doing corporate work, and let's say you're doing music for Sears or Hudson's Bay or Canadian Tire or whatever, mm -hmm. I know that the end product is whatever. Is are there things? Is it just a paying gig, or is there things that you you listen to on commercials? Go, man, I I nailed that one. Like, is there a certain sense of pride that you well, have with that work? Um, it wasn't. You know, as I said I, I, earlier, I never wanted to be the star or anything, so it wasn't the glory. I never listened to it and said, "Wow, I really nailed nailed that," or "I'm, you know, I'm really proud of that track," or whatever. Uh, what I was always motivated by was trying to gain the respect, or trying to become good enough to gain the respect of my peers, the the guys that I thought were really great. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was my goal: is is if I could f feel like I fit in with those guys, and they. Um, they had some respect for me on some level as a musician. That was my goal, uh, not to be noticed by uh, the public or anybody else. And, and the guys that I'm talking about, uh, they're still all the same as I am. They're still the guys that I really love dearly and that I still work with in the studio the most are the guys that are like me, only they're, they're still all better than me. But the guys that... Uh, started out and have just continued to improve their whole life. And they, they you know, like, uh, even if you don't see them for a, a couple months or a few months and, and then you, you go to do a session with them, you, you know, you, they sit down with their instrument and you, you hear them doing something new that they, you know they didn't do last time you saw them. You go, oh, you just, you know, you look at each other, and go, oh, you've been working on something, haven't you? Yeah, I have, yeah. I've been doing this thing. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah, and, and that's as much of conversation as we have, but that's the acknowledgement that, you know, you're doing it and I'm doing it and he's doing it. And he's doing it. You know, we're all 
we're all still doing the same thing, right. playing that game that we play with ourselves. If, if you know, I can do this now, and I couldn't do it three months ago. Now what's next? Now what's next? Then what's next? You know, and it's um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Now we talked about before the interview. We talked about your love of baseball. If I'm not mistaken, you were involved in the OK Blue Jay, yeah, song, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it was a you know. It's it's a funny thing, uh, in that to me, I remember doing the session. I remember where it was. I remember the time of day. I remember who was playing on it. With you know who else was there, and uh, you know because it's become an iconic thing that that's uh, um, obviously attached to the Blue Jays. You know, and, and also and, it's been played for years and years and years. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know it, but. Uh, I mean, all, all I remember about the session, though, was it, it was, you know, it was at Eastern Sound, and, and it was at night, you know, it was probably 7, seven or 8 o'clock at night, and uh, I was tired because I'd done about four other se- or three other sessions that day, and I was tired and wanted to go home. And, that, you know, I remember doing the track and play it on it, and it was fun because it was with the guys that I love being with, and it was, an, you know, it was a cool song, and it was fun to do. But, you know, you never expect anything from those things when you're doing it at the time. Right. You, you're just... It, like people say, did you have a special feeling about it? No, I didn't have any feeling about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, it was a gig and we were doing it. And it, in fact, it was just a pitch anyway. It was a, a demo at the time that they were pitching to, uh, you know, the marketing people of the Blue Jays. And somebody gave it the okay and, and the rest is, uh, no pun intended, okay, Blue Jays. But uh, if somebody, you know, said yeah this is going to be the, the theme and that was the end of it and it became the thing but uh it that's not what drives me at all right it's you know it's Can, it's it's a nice uh it's, it's a nice little sidebar yeah it's a nice story but that's that's all so you also do a lot of production work you've produced a lot of albums and you've also played on a lot of albums but a lot of people might not know what artists you've worked with can you talk about some of those highlights for you yeah i mean uh, you know it's it's uh um, I can give people a list of names, but it's uh, um, to you know it's it's a funny thing. Um, people always glamorize it more than what it really is. I mean, it, it's just it's, it's just a job, you know. Right. Uh, I you know I but I've I've been fortunate. Uh, I've recorded uh, a lot with Anne Murray. I've probably played on twenty or more albums for maybe maybe twenty five. I had a lot of records for Anne Murray. And but I've also worked with Gordon Lightfoot and and then the newer generation like Alanis Morissette and, and uh, um, you know Alana Miles and you know let the you know I've been very fortunate and worked with uh, with Smokey Robinson in the studio you know on a TV show uh, but we record I recorded with Smokey Robinson because we recorded one of his songs for the TV show and uh, you know to to me now that that's where um, you know. It was it was very very flattering and and very gratifying to to play on all those Anne Murray records and and to play with Alanis Morissette and and uh, you know I played on uh, a duo that Dan did with Nelly Furtado and you know and Jan Arden and people like that. But uh, for me, uh, standing in the control room beside Smokey Robinson, listening to a playback of a song that we just recorded together, was because I grew up listening to Motown yeah, yeah. all the time. You know, so to, to me that was otherworldly. 
I'm sure. You know, that was like, you know, because I became the, you know, the, 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 uh, the nervous giggling fan, you know, like standing beside me. I'm standing, I'm looking at Smokey Robinson and he's right there, man. Jesus, you know, and you know, we're, we're, but we're just two guys. That, that's what it really all is. I mean, that's what, what people don't understand. He's Smokey Robinson. Uh, that's, yeah, of course, absolutely he is. And, uh, and, and I'm just Mike Francis. But we're both standing there together listening to something that we just created together with other musicians. Stand there listening back. And he looks down at me because he's a lot taller than I am. And he, he says, I like it, man. What do you think? And I said, I like it too. Yeah, it's cool. And he's, yeah, it's cool, man. You know, like he liked the band. And he liked the studio, and he liked what we were doing, and and so like that to me was uh, you know uh, was bigger than than uh, some of the other names I could mention. I'm sure. Tell me, you were telling me about your own project playing in a jazz band, and I know recently you sent me your version of Little Wing. Yeah. So do you still do a lot of recordings? Yeah, I'm. Uh, th- this year I've I've been really lucky. I'm um, involved in a bunch of of stuff and it's 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 interesting i mean it's you know i've got a lot of little live gigs going on like like for for me a lot is maybe 15 or 20 over the period of a year 15 or 20 live gigs that's as many as i want to do like one night here and there and a lot of them are uh, 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 some of the the smaller jazz festivals because there's jazz festivals all the way up and down the 401 from ottawa to windsor right? right so you know a lot of them are little things like that and that i get to put a band together for or or just myself and my bass player do and then so that's that's fun but the, but the live stuff I look at the you know it's funny I look at the live stuff and the studio stuff in two different ways the the live playing to me is like uh going bowling with the guys or playing golf right. because I don't do either one of those things but it's it's a social thing <laughs> yeah it's not uh, you know like I'm just as serious about it about when I'm doing it but uh, the th- you know I'm really really dead serious when there's microphones in front of my instrument and and people are gonna listen to this when when we're done and critique it right and that's the difference between playing live and playing in the studio um, and so you know this year I'm also involved uh, I'll, I'll give you one little line in a minute here which I I'll try and remember but um, doing a new recording for uh, an artist named Susan Glukark. Mm. Who's a very talented lady, and I, I'm lucky enough uh, that uh, we co just co-wrote two songs on the project for for her. Her and I wrote two songs together, and then I'm involved in two other songs uh, as a writer, and also playing guitar on the project. So that's fun, uh, and I, I love her. She, you know, she's wonderful. We're very good friends, and uh, uh, then a bunch of uh, uh, indie artists. I've got uh, you know, like some of the people I'm working with now are 19 and 20 years old. You know. Uh, you know, kids that are really, really talented, and and uh, sometimes they need an, an old guitar player that uh, that has other ideas or brings other things to the table. So I've got a bunch of projects like that on the go, and uh, and of course the project that you and I were both involved in, mm-hmm. which is the uh, group of seven guitars thing at the which uh, you're amazing at. Uh, you're kind, but <laughs> but the, 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 which is a big deal that uh, I think it's a big deal at the McMichael Gallery mm-hmm. and uh, it's been expen- extended till March yes it is yeah yeah, yeah. and they uh, uh, you know you were very involved from with the Riddle Films on that end of it and uh, and I got to I came and played some guitar and then I got to record some of the background music for it yes uh, solo guitar so you know like that's a, a bunch of things that are fun to do and 
it's all it's 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 all just uh, uh, it all adds up to a, a good year for me and, and a good feeling. Like you know, these are kind of like the McMichael thing is is a big deal for me. The whole concept of the thing. If, mm-hmm. if people are listening and they want to, uh, if if you hear about it in time and you want to uh, check it out, the uh, you know the group of seven guitars uh, are seven guitar builders that have been commissioned by the McMichael Gallery to build uh, to each build a guitar from the influence of the group of seven painters. Right. As, and they were each assigned one of those painters, and, and then they proceeded to build instruments that are just out of this world. These are amazing guitar makers. Yeah, these are people that are on another level, in, <laughs> yeah. in another pursuit, you know, another artistic pursuit, all, them, all, all to, unto themselves. They're all geniuses. And, uh, and I, got, I, I was fortunate enough to be chosen by one to play uh, his guitar, David Wren, and it's a spectacular instrument. And, and so they made a DVD, and, yeah. you know, uh, as... as we you know we're talking about that we're both involved in, and that was exciting you know so different things like that uh make make my life so interesting right for this, sure you know it, it keep, keeps because there's so many different things going on and uh and of course it, it makes you have to uh try and stay on top of your game because you know uh when when you go for example going to to do the live gig is like i said it's social it's fun but I still am very serious about it. But then it's not the same as, you know, going to a studio and, and writing a song with Susan the glue car and then recording it mm-hmm. and trying to make it into something, you know, elegant and beautiful and, and really, you know, make it into what she needs uh, it to be for her for her recording. Uh, and and then going, you know, the pieces that we all played, uh, myself included, for the. Um, uh, the the gallery for the exhibit at the gallery at the McBichael uh, were all original pieces, and then he, you you were at the recording. I mean, you know, they they sit you down. And it's there's three camera guys that stick a camera a foot and a half from your face, and there's a microphone on your guitar, and they say, okay, go ahead and play. You know, and as like as I said earlier, that's not the world that I really really like. Right. You know, where okay this. There's lights all over and baffles and about 17 lights on you and the camera guys, three of them, is right in your face. Now play. Go ahead. Just relax and play. You know, let's see what you got. And I'm going, oh, my God. So, I mean, the only way I can do it is close my eyes and pretend it doesn't exist and just well, play the guitar. I know I was there. It was a stunning piece of music. And, in fact, right after I saw you perform that, I went to you and said, I'd like to interview you one day. Because I didn't know anything about you except that that you are this amazing guitar player and uh, you certainly delivered. It's, it's well, thank you. That's kind an of honor you. to actually work with you on that. So That's I kind of you, sir. <laughs> thank but you. Um, thank you for doing this. Um, yeah. You know, I've just, I, I got, when I watched you work, I just thought, well, here's a, here's a player that's pretty special. And, and you wrote those two pieces, which are beautiful pieces. Um, and I want to sit down and talk to you for the longest time and, What's finally happened? I really appreciate you spending this time with me. It's, it's my pleasure, absolutely. You're, you're a gentleman, and you know it was uh, fun to work with Riddle, fun to work you know with all the people, including yourself, and just there, everybody was nice, yeah. and that's you know and accommodating and helpful and kind and and considerate and you know like that's a big deal, mm-hmm. you know. It really, and that's usually uh, another thing that a lot of people don't understand, don't know, is that a lot of most the majority of people you run into whether it's the recording studio or whether it's, you know, doing live gigs or whether it's, uh, you know, working with a film crew at the McMichael and doing a totally different project are there because they're really nice people. They're really good at what they do. They're excellent. They're all very extremely talented 
themselves, but they're also very kind, nice people, and it was fun. Yeah, that, that was a great gig. I think part of loving what we do is probably um, a big part of that. Yeah, you know? and and also you know it's it's easy for people to recognize that oh you know um, each each other's level of, of ability too. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I look at that documentary and I see what you've done and I, and I know what they've done, I go, oh, wow, that's... Because I've seen a few versions of it, you know, because I, I did the, some of the background music, so I, I, I've seen different cuts of it and, and realized how they've just kept improving it until it's to the state that it's in, which is... Yeah. It's, it's a really nice piece of work. No, we feel very... I mean, I feel really lucky to be part of that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, myself as well. Anyway, this is pleasure, and thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. It's, um, it's a real honor to meet you. Likewise. Thanks.